0: Where the Whiteboards are, a podcast by educators about all things education.
1: Hello again, dear listeners. Thank you for joining us once again. Uh, unfortunately, Sam uh, was not able to join us still today. I know I say still. Okay, there was one other episode. Maybe you've already heard it, I, but it's okay, the same day. Another episode, still not here. We all have our days. It's cool. We're all allowed to have those days. Um, for today, I thought I, so recently I found a new podcast. It's called Inquiring Minds. Uh, I listened to it on Spotify. Um, really cool. It's a science-based podcast, a lot of different topics. Like it's like, if is it vaguely science related? They're talking about it. Um, the first one I listened to was about... Uh, uh, astrophysics kind of stuff. So uh, some
0: light reading or yeah, light listening. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's pretty short form. It's, okay. it's like 30, 36 minutes per episode, something like that. Um, the next episode was about like oncology and cancer treatment and stuff like that. But um, just this past Friday, uh, the, I... Was listening through the, their catalog and found one that was about neuroscience and education. So of course, immediately my ears perked up. I was like, "Now wait a second. Am I going to call this person? Do we want to in- interview this person as well? Like, what's going on here?" No, I mean they're like an internationally renowned like doctorate of neuroscience. They <laughs> they don't have time for us. <laughs> that's that's not happening. Uh, but uh, they they do uh, talk about some interesting things. And uh, I guess this would technically uh, count as one of our like blind react episodes, even though. Technically not blind. We did discuss it uh, whenever we first got here today, um, at least some of the things that were in this episode um, that I w- thought were really intriguing. So this episode of Inquiring Minds, um, it, the, I'm going to mess up this name and I'm so sorry. Um, so
0: Do you want to... Do you want us to like pause it so we can hear it on your phone? Like, no,
1: it it'll be fine. I'll do my best. You can okay. look up the episode on Inquiring Minds. Uh it was released March 10th of 2020. There is like one comment in the episode about COVID that I'm like, oh, this was before. Um <laughs> <laughs> but like literally the day before. Ooh. Uh yeah. Uh so but it uh, the uh the book, okay, the author of the book is uh Stanislas Stanislas Dehan Dehan. Hmm. Stanislaus Dejan. I'm doing my best. I'm sorry. Uh, and the book is called how we learn why brains learn better than any machine for now. And that's, uh, the episode of the, uh, or the title of the episode as well. You can look it up and listen to it. They're much more eloquent in their description of these, uh, concepts, these topics, but, uh, through it, you know, I'll just give like some of the lead up, some of the framing that they provide us with. And then at the end, um, uh, in this book, um, Dr. Dehan, I'm pretty sure is how they say it, uh, outlines like four pillars of education based very specifically on uh, neuroscience, like on on scientific discoveries of how the human brain works. And like, yeah, we've all been through childhood, child psychology. Like we talk about John Piaget and Eric Erickson and, you know, Kohlberg's moral development, like a. We, we've been through psych 101 and everything, but some of these are very f- like, they're, they're more finely tuned to how we can approach education. <clears throat> and, uh, through, through the interview and, uh, in the book, uh, he makes it clear, like, and the message for educators is, and so I, I just thought it was interesting. I thought we could kind of like hash it out, uh, dig into some of this more, uh, if, if we feel like we need to. Um, so they start off, they, they frame the whole thing, um, as, you know, essentially like the discussion has always been nature versus nurture, which really we could break that into neuroscience versus education like how like what predispositions does the human brain have just out of the womb you know like we already have language centers we've discovered that all the lobes are already in place like literally all the wires are there they just need to be connected and they get connected through stimulation like from our environment from sensory input in our environment um and ultimately like if we capitalize on what we know about sensory inputs and how our brains process them that is how we can be effective educators. Right. So that's, that's kind of like the main, uh, uh, framing of what sounds like the whole book. Again, I, I listened to this like two days ago
2: <laughs> and I just got really
1: excited and wanted to share yeah. it with you guys.
2: Well, I'm excited to listen and, and dig into that book too after this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you can find it on audible or whatever audiobook you know, situation you've got. Um, so, in it, he also talks about how, um, humans again for now i guess uh humans are better uh than artificial intelligence um like at learning specifically um and he talks about it's because um like technically ai can recognize patterns like quicker than humans can, but humans can generate patterns without prompting. Or I guess like a, a techn- I mean, we can get into a philosophical discussion of like, what are any of our thoughts except just like regurgitated, like synthesization of previous inputs that we've had. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But um, humans, like we, we, we generate our own patterns. We generate our own, you know, it's, it's that, it's that intellect, that imagination, that, that impetus of creativity. Yeah. You know, whatever you want to call it. Go outside the box. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Yeah. And so that is what makes us, it makes our brains uh, better than AI, at least for now. Right. We'll see what happens in the next 10 years with, you know, neural networks and stuff like that. Um, And one of the things that he talks about then... After, after talking about how human brains are better than AI is uh, our specific example is how our reading and visual language connect, right, uh, our, with with our spoken language, because that's not natural. And in fact, it's a very recent thing. If you look at like human evolution as a whole, like the idea of connecting graphemes to phonemes, it, like our brains are not technically built for that you know it's a, it's within the last 10,000 years that we have written language and so there are other pieces of our brain forged by evolution that we essentially are synthesizing together in order to create written language and to be able to read um, and in, a, in, in some ways we have to unlearn evolution like in the process of learning how to read and I thought of Amanda I thought of you and Sam specifically because of the ELA connection there um, just because like a B and a D he talks about how a B and a D the first time a child sees them, like the visual processing center says, well, those are the same thing because, you know, you think of like the danger of a lion, like out in the wild. Well, it doesn't matter if it's facing to the left or to the right, it's still a lion. Yeah. yeah. And so that innate sense of like, well, that is, it's a lion, right? And so a a child learning to read, it doesn't mean that they have dyslexia. It doesn't mean that they have some sort of um, um, mental disorder or learning disorder that's going to prevent them from being able to learn to read. Um, It just if anything goes to show why certain techniques work better we're like like actually tracing out the letters practicing writing them that kind of thing because then it actually builds that that synthesis connection between what is it broca's area and our visual cortex or um, i'm i'm getting this way wrong go, it's listen, all good. go, <laughs> go listen to dr dehan Talk about it. Yeah. Like, you obviously, you know, it's way it. more about this.
2: Well, and any students that struggled with like reversal um, and may not see it a ton in high school outside of special education, but like lowercase B and D. Mm-hmm. But then you add a six in there, which is very similar as mm-hmm. well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, L and seven, uh-huh. you know, and it, it's interesting, like. Going through this with little, with my daughters right now and and trying to get them to understand the difference between like an L Mm -hmm. for Lily and like the number seven as well. Like they're similar, but they're different. And I guess I'd never thought of that in terms of like evolutionary perspective of like we, it didn't matter. Right. But now all of a sudden, you know, the symbol, the way it's oriented matters. It has a completely different meaning. Yeah. Super interesting.
1: Yeah, and again, like all of those pieces are already there in our brain. Like, technically, evolution didn't teach us to connect the the symbol to the sound. Right. But we had symbol, we had sound, mm-hmm. and then all the wires are there. We just had to forge the connection between them. Man, and eventually, that happened. That makes me
2: like jump to like what don't what haven't we learned or developed yet that our brains are right. capable of? Right. Right. Like, like, oh my gosh,
1: the next wow. five thousand years of human history. If there are five thousand more years, like.
0: Like, right, what is do yeah. right
1: yeah what what synthesis hasn't mm. been activated yet you know i keep kicking the mic stand i'm sorry that's for so the good. effect that that's giving you in your <laughs> headphones or speakers dear listener anyways um almost done with like the framing before the four pillars part right and that's where like i felt like we could really dig into it um one of the one of the last things he talks about before defining the four pillars uh, that he identified based on neuroscience uh, is that the the idea that students learn in different styles is ultimately BS. And I'm paraphrasing. Okay. Right? <laughs> he had much more proper, like professional uh, verbiage there. But uh, he, he essentially says we are all multimodal learners. Right. Like there is te- there's one human brain. We all have a different version of it, but there's one human brain. And so the idea that like, oh, well, I can only learn visually or I can only learn through lecture or I can only learn through tactile manipulation is ultimately like ultimately we all need all of it because we all have those parts of the brain, I guess, unless it's been like cut out or something. But that's... (laughs) Obviously an extreme example, that's an outlier. Um, and so we're all multimodal learners and that we, we can play to that advantage, like in the classroom, right? Like as teachers finding a way, like in your lesson, it's not about diversifying, having like four different lesson plans over the same topic. It's about like within your lesson plan, are they tactilely uh, manipulating something? Are they reading Are they, um, you know, what are, are they seeing you do it? Are they following an example, whatever, and finding a way to like incorporate all of those for all of the students. And, you know, on that, I feel like whenever I was going through my educator education, whenever professors talked about diversifying for different learners, it always to me felt like that was expected that I, that I come up with four different lesson plans and implement all four of them simultaneously.
2: Mm, yeah. Okay.
1: You know what I'm saying? It never felt like, hey, within the one lesson plan when you're doing something, find a way to incorporate all the different learning styles, like, and streamline that together.
0: So it's more, really what you're saying is those are just learning preferences. Yeah. Like, you can prefer to listen to a lecture, you could prefer to have tactile, whatever mm-hmm. it is that you're doing. And it's not so much that you learn better with right. one over the other.
1: Or that you can't learn the other way as well. well yeah. It's more about like a, a little bit of all, you know, for everybody. Right.
2: And to maybe develop the non-preference areas, you you need that input. Yeah. This is what I'm understanding, right?
1: Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially. Yes. Like engaging mm-hmm. the whole brain, the whole person. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to remember if this was where he talked about, I have my notes in front of me, but I'm just scanning them really quick. Sorry. <laughs> you can cut this out. Later, it's all honestly. good. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, here, I'll, I'll, I'll just continue through my notes um, because there's one point where he talks about the difference between uh, growth mindset and fixed mindset in education. Um, fixed being like everybody has innate abilities and ultimately how that ties in with this learning styles thing. And then growth mindset where, you know, the idea that like we all could be anything, is just about what we foster, what we, uh, you know, how we, how we develop those skills. Um, I think it's in one of the four pillars. So let's, let's get into those. (laughs) Let's just get into those and we'll we'll discover if uh, it digs more into it. So the first pillar that he identifies based on neuroscientific research is attention, right? Like we, We know that psychologically speaking, we can only pay attention to one thing at a time because we have so many sensory inputs always constantly visual, like all five of our senses are constantly collecting information. And so it's the job of our prefrontal cortex to decide like, what do, what, what is relevant to what we're doing right now? What information do I need to pay attention to? Right. And that's, that, that's what attention is. Um, and so finding a way, uh, to take that conscious process, uh, and, and direct it towards like whatever you're trying to teach the kid. And this feels like very obvious, right? Like, yeah, of course, I'm supposed to like gain their attention and then like tell them what to do. But like, if they, if, if if the kid says that they don't see what you're talking about, it's a very legitimate, very literal, like they don't see it. They don't know what to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And so like, actually like breaking down and showing to them, like, pay attention to how this does that you know like if you're in a chemistry class like how the solution changes color right well that's a really obvious one like yeah. obviously when you see it like change color but there's more like minute differences within the disciplines that they're just not going to know what the heck you're trying to pay attention to i mean i i see it in the music class obviously where i'm like the intonation of this chord. And they just look at me like, yeah, sure. I'm like, oh, okay. We need to like talk about, like draw your attention to what are your ears telling you? Like which, which sensory input are we specifically paying attention to? What do we do with that information? What is the information ultimately telling us?
0: So I think you could see that in maybe note-taking for your students. If you're giving a lecture and you have like a PowerPoint, I am somebody that's very guilty of when I put a PowerPoint up, I will just start talking. And I know for a fact they are not listening to me Mm -hmm. because they are writing down what's on that PowerPoint exactly. slide because they can only pay attention to the one thing.
1: And then once they copy down the information from that slide, then,
0: well, then they listening. can check
1: out until the slide changes.
0: Right. Or or um they'll also is the issue of, well, what all from this slide is important? Right? What do I yeah. need? What do I actually need to write down? And that's a very nuanced skill yeah. that applies to this idea of paying attention.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've all seen it. That person who highlights... everything. Everything. It's like, because they don't know. Right. They're like, well, if I highlight it, I'll remember it. But it's like, well, the highlight should be reserved for what you should be paying the most attention to. Yeah. So that individual, that should be a red flag of like, oh, I need to help that student find or distinguish Mm -hmm. what the most important aspect to pay attention to is.
1: Yeah.
2: And same with note-taking. The kid that writes down literally everything that's maybe on the PowerPoint and you've given them The PowerPoint, like you know, right? Um, it's like, well, that's not a very effective. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. I think also, especially with you know, post COVID, like one of one of the things that was really drilled at some of the PDs was like trauma informed education, like trauma informed learning or teaching. Um, and I think that that plays into this as well because you know, if what their brain, what their prefrontal cortex is paying attention to is, uh, you know, my arm still hurts from my punishment last night, yeah, or my stomach hurts because I didn't eat breakfast. Or, you know, that kind of stuff right. like plays into it. And, and so I know that there's only so much that we can do as teachers. And that's why this feels like such a futile practice sometimes, yeah. you know, where it's like, yeah, teachers need to. What did I write down here? Educators should be aware of guiding students attention. Yeah, sure. How do I overcome right. all of these external factors?
2: And we've talked about it before, cell phones or like yeah devices that they can access media and that that are constantly in competition for our, for the attention of the student, you know, it, it's really tough mm-hmm. to, you know, it's not just like, oh, pay attention to this. It, if it were that easy, we wouldn't have issues. But right. there's, yeah, the, the trauma, cause we've all been there, like if, when you're in crisis, and like you get the tunnel vision or you don't hear things. Yeah. And it's like, maybe it's not that extreme in the moment in the classroom, but if you've got something else on your mind or like, man, I, I haven't eaten or I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. You know, it's, it's going to be hard to pay attention on anything else.
1: I mean, it's literally that the, the gorilla experiment oh, where you don't. Yeah.
2: Great point. Yeah, yeah. Cause,
1: cause you weren't paying attention. You weren't, there's no reason for you to pay attention to the gorilla that's right in front of you. Yeah. You know? And so you do not even perceive that it's there and that's. You know, so finding a way to uh, generate that attention, to grab that attention, direct the sensory input or or, or like which sensory input to pay attention to ultimately is that first pillar. So that's pillar number one. Yeah. Right. Pillar number two is a. collaboration or active engagement again this is like it feels really obvious like as an educator but also the way that it's presented from this neuroscientific like perspective from the from that standpoint just makes it feel very like fresh to me i don't, I don't know why so breaking that down um you want for students Project a hip, a hypothesis on the world around them. That is active engagement, right? Which our brains are constantly doing, right? There's there's you you make a prediction about the world, and then like you interact with the world, and then in in the third pillar, it talks more about this. But then there's a discrepancy between what your brain predicted and then what actually happened, and then taking that and it, and it, it generates curiosity ultimately. But you want for students to be uh, projecting their hypothesis hypotheses in order to actively engage. With their environment, um, it encourages curiosity. And oh, I also wrote down the dopamine reward for new information comes from that process of making a hypothesis and interacting with the world. And and the more that I mean, a dopamine is 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 the reinforcer neurotransmitter. You know, like that's that's what gets us to do things again. It's what makes us want to do something again in the future. And so the more um, interaction that the students can receive with their or through their environment based on the hypotheses that they create, the more dopamine rewards they're going to get for that interaction. And thus, they're more likely to do that again in the future, right? They're more likely to make that hypothesis projected onto the world. Thus, the learning process continues, right? It generates that curiosity.
0: So when you say collaboration, are you referring to them collaborating with peers? Is that part of the world, interacting with the world, is that peers, is that we're going on a walk outside and seeing if the shadow from the tree does Whoa. this? Is we're,
1: it- we're all multimodal learners. Okay. So I, I think it looks like a lot of different ways. I mean, he does go on to talk about how it, uh, some educational research shows that at least 50% of a lesson should be devoted to student questions. Wow. Which, Interesting. which yeah. like, I mean, I definitely take a lot of student questions and sometimes it does feel like I'm beating my head against a wall because then yeah. they start to trail off into like not the topic that we're supposed mm-hmm. to be talking about anymore, you know? But that does ultimately help to generate that curiosity.
0: Which we squash. Yeah, because I'm yeah. trying to get
1: through my material. I'm right, trying to, right. you know, teach my lesson. And the, hearing that piece
2: makes me see the value of like a flipped classroom where students get instruction, maybe like online through a video or something that the teacher has produced. And they're doing that at home in the off hours. And then at school, the students are asking questions and getting... Getting help on like the homework. So that sense of like flip from the traditional of like, man, that would really allow you to focus on that. Mm -hmm. So like the functional piece of this, I wonder, is it to make sure that you foster that? Is it making sure that students are making predictions and you're trying to actively get their attention in that process of like, what do you think will happen next or is
1: yeah i think uh you know looking at this it really seems like all four of the pillars play into each other sure sure you know like if if you're guiding their attention you know getting them to pay mm-hmm. attention to certain sensory inputs they might start to ask you know why is it like easy example off the top of the head like if, if there's dissonance in a chord mm-hmm. like that we're playing in band or something whenever like if you play a minor second between two instruments you don't just hear the two notes you also hear there's like a wobble like in the air, in the sound. Mm-hmm. It's like a kind of, I don't know how to describe it <laughs> without like playing two notes, you know, yeah. but there's, there's <clears throat> in defining like dissonance, you know, if they don't know what that is and they've never paid attention to the sound between the sounds before that's going to get them asking questions. Right. And that's where they're going to project that hypothesis of why is that happening? And ultimately, like as the educator, if you're paying attention to that moment, it opens up the door to all sorts of conversations that you could have about constructive versus destructive interference. You know, now we're Talking about physics, right? Or you could you could talk about yeah. how that works as a compositional device. Now we're talking about music theory. You know, it's it's that's that collaborate slash active engagement part with that like by directing their attention and generating that curiosity. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I always loved those big questions where students like, well, what happens if we? You- In math, you know, like, what if if we do this crazy thing in this type of problem? And it's like, oh, that's a really good question. Instead of it just being focused on, well, how do I get through this next, you know, task? Right. Like those big questions like, oh, this is a great, great question. And we can all dig into this. Like
1: what happens, what happens if instead of just a single variable, what if I put another function as the variable? yeah function of a function. Fun, yeah,
2: um, and it that leads to really good learning. but and I feel like sometimes when high schoolers when they get to that level, they're so they've lost that that creativity has been like squashed.
0: Oh. Very much so. So
2: they're just like, you know, it's almost like they're in a factory of learning. Like, please stand and deliver
0: Yes, mm. please spoon feed me this. But mm. it in my brain, it is now open Let's and I will say on. Yeah. yeah.
1: That like in this interview he does talk about how a lot of the research that he talks that 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 the these pillars of education are based on is early childhood research about like how the brain exists before <laughs> The world happens yeah. to it, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, and, and trying, trying to really, uh, he 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 mentioned several times about capitalizing on the scientific fact of how our brains work. You know, so it it is focused on early childhood, and so yeah, by the time they get to our classrooms, by the, by the time they get to the secondary, they're classroom,
0: ruined. No yeah. one has ruined them. <laughs> and I don't, I don't mean
1: to point the finger at <laughs> elementary teachers and be like, it's no, your no, fault. Like, all. I can only imagine what it's like to wrangle 30, like, five-year-olds in a room together. I, I, it takes, but I also it don't takes think a it's special person.
2: The elementary teachers, like, sometimes I think it's that coming of an age in middle school where just, like, other things are playing a factor in your development, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like right? puberty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like... I, yeah. You know, like
0: middle school teachers. Oh, I yeah. can't imagine just learning you about do. the world
2: isn't as important as being right. cool
1: and popular, and <laughs> right. having the right hair. I was never as cool as I was in middle school. That's right, <laughs> my
0: seventh grade body spray. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh my man, God. I peaked in sixth grade. <laughs>
0: it was a
1: wild ride. That's so when no, I started it's, growing my goatee. It's honestly, between grade. seventh and eighth grade, like as a as now that I have middle school experience, right. sixth graders are still like this starry eyed fifth grader, just like a little bit bigger. And like with a few yeah. more like mental faculties and then they get into seventh and eighth grade and they're just like, I'm too cool for this. I'm right. Like, Anyways. And put it on deodorant. <laughs> <laughs> and also you smell <laughs> bad. So <laughs> don't take it personally. It's yeah. all of them. I went through that phase too. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, yeah. So 50% of class time dedicated to student questioning mm-hmm. in order to allow now, as a classroom management thing, like that's only going to work if the kids are actually actively engaged, yeah. because then you're just going to end up with like one or two students who just want to like see how far off the topic they can drive you, right. which sometimes I let happen on purpose. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I don't care.
0: But, <laughs> sure, also, yeah. but also doesn't that go back to attention and your intention on what you want them to focus on mm-hmm. so if you can garner both like you said all of these four are going to kind of coincide together in some mm-hmm. capacity I can think about how some of my best lessons have really been those moments where kids can question where kids yeah. can talk about what's you know what's going on in the story with this what do you if you were this character why would you Would you do the same thing why would you or wouldn't you um, so I do think that there is merit in the organized chaos of that if you can yeah. if you can get it Absolutely.
1: from them. Yeah. Third pillar? Yeah, sure. Third it. pillar is error correction slash feedback. Oh, okay. Right? Like, like, duh, teachers need to give feedback. Yes. Like, <laughs> as quickly as possible. As, as quickly as possible. Yeah. We all need feedback as quickly as possible. I mean, in, in terms of neuroscience, it's, what, 250 milliseconds between the, like, the prediction occurring on what's going to happen with the world. Like, if I want to slap this table, where's the table actually going to be? Right. And then the sensory feedback of there's the table, the the delay is like 250 milliseconds. So um, fostering that that prediction is super important leading into it. Um, The research has shown this is okay. This is where the uh, growth mindset and everything plays in uh, that there. We have not seen success from that approach. Like there's no data, no like hard and fast, like scientific data that shows true verifiable results from growth mindset. Versus fixed mindset. Can you
0: maybe clarify that for our listeners, what you mean by growth mindset, maybe?
1: Yeah, growth mindset being uh, you can develop any skill. Like you're going to start off bad at whatever it is you're trying the first time. I mean, obviously some of us are uh, uh, adept at certain things uh, over others, but the growth mindset is the idea that like, just because you're bad at it right now doesn't mean you can't be good at it later. He talks about how uh, the kid who thinks that they are just bad at math, whenever like, you know, a doctorate, mathematicians also sweat over math problems like they also have right. to grapple with the, the, with the calculations in front of them like it's it's not like they're just magically easy at it or anything it's it's something that we all struggle with and so allowing the space for students to make those mistakes and then giving them valuable rapid feedback on those mistakes in order to learn in order to shape behavior because ultimately that's that's what learning is we're just shaping each other's behavior like Constantly. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, in this section of the podcast, he does give a special shout out to music teachers. So, yeah. (laughs) But he he talks about how specifically music educators uh, are are a special breed in this category because nobody teaches beginning band (laughs) and, and expects the kids to not make mistakes. You know, like, yeah, right. of course you sound bad. Have you ever touched a trombone before? Your arms aren't even long enough to get to sixth position. (laughs) Of course, of course, there's just going to be a plethora of mistakes. And of course, I'm going to have to work with you on this for the next five to six years before we actually see and hear like true results. Right. And, and, and to see that development over time, but like you could apply that to literally any skill communication or, or mathematical calculations. Like those are skills that can be developed. Um, and sometimes whenever the feedback is just an assignment or a test with it with error marks all or it's just like a bunch of red lines, right. oh crap, I only got a twelve out of sixty or something like I don't know, whatever. Then that that's not, you know, that's not giving them the actual feedback that they need. Yeah, like it's in not that the correctness
2: process. of it. You're not trying right. to correct there. You're just pointing it out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Now, what that actually looks like for a core classroom where you have thirty to forty students all sitting there and you have to teach them all this curriculum, I'm not saying that I have an answer to that. You know Well,
0: well I think a lot of it involves, especially in the English world, we write papers that's kind Mm -hmm. of a thing that you do in English um involves conferencing with kids and it exhausting when you have those conferences with kids because your brain is really having to push and think through well what's that sentence structure why does it look like that how do I tell the kid like hey your period is in a weird spot you're making you know sentence fragments whatever
1: while retaining what they mean to say right yeah
0: yeah so um there's a lot of that, I think, conference element that has to take place in order to give valuable feedback. So, something that I, over the years, have really thought about is why am I writing comments to these students about why they received a B minus on their essay? They're never gonna come back to it. No, they really don't give a crap beyond seeing what the grade is. So truly the best part of my feedback to them mm-hmm. is in the writing process when I can conference with them mm-hmm. and say, hey, your introduction needs this, this, and this. I'm going to come back to you and see that it has those things. Yeah. And so oftentimes with English teachers, yes, we have a ton to grade. Oh my gosh. And, and, and you want to be valuable and give those valuable notes and, and you know check for those errors and things. But we're really doing our students a disservice when we spend five hours grading essays that they are then going to not do anything with.
1: And that's so, yeah, you're right. That's not where the valuable feedback happens. That's not where the learning happens. Right. right? The learning
0: happens in that in-between time. It happens when I'm conferencing with those kids, when they're peer conferencing with one another, Mm -hmm. that is where they're seeing the most growth. And it's not about that grade at the end. Um, And I think that so, uh, especially in the English world is where we have our pitfall. Um, it's so much easier, honestly, make yourself a rubric and just click, 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 click. You got a 30 out of 40 and move on with your life because right. y- if you're going to come back to those skills, come back to them and check it during conferencing. Yeah. Otherwise it doesn't matter. Yeah.
2: In math, error correction was always a big part of my philosophy. I loved giving problems and homework or class examples of a problem that's solved incorrectly. Like the... Mm. The prompt is, here's the problem. It's been solved and it's incorrect. Let's find it and fix it. And sometimes it's tough because it's like, well, no, it looks like they did it right. It has everything kind of worked out like a Broken student down. would. Yeah. Um, and, the you know, and, and sometimes it's tricky finding that error. And the, to me, those were so valuable because it's pointing out, oh, these are mistakes that you could make and trying to prevent those before they happen. But I also wanted to like we did homework every night. We graded it. Um, and, and I thought that was important, like practice daily. Yes. Find out what you did wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was never like homework grades were never huge by any means because it's meant to be practice. It's meant to be feedback. And it and it was a tough conversation with some parents of like, you know, like if if you don't do this daily practice, like sometimes we don't have enough time in class to practice enough of these complex problems. Like some of these problems might take 10, 20 minutes a piece. And at some point you need to be able to do like attempt these on your own.
1: So It just took me back to my calculus class. Or like an entire sheet <laughs> yeah. of paper for one problem.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and trying to get that that feedback as quick as possible. So like I would try to use technology of like, okay, well, here's uh, homework that, that will grade itself. And then you like come back to me with questions if you don't understand it. Like hoping that at that point the student could like dig into like, well, why did I miss this? And, and try to fix it. But you kind of come to find out like... At that point, most students are like, well, this is just my score. I don't want to, I don't want to dig into why I got things wrong. Don't engage with it. Like I have to be in that process as much. And it, man, it's, it's labor intensive to do that for every individual because the errors are usually, or at some point they're like very individual. You know, Johnny may be making a very different type of error than Susie who's making different than, than Timmy. Mm. Um, But it, man, it's important, but it's time intensive it is for sure and one of the things that I found is like there were a lot of students that just they weren't prepared to have those conversations They had never in terms of math never looked at it like from an error correction standpoint like they're like well nobody's you know we've always been this is how you do it I'm just bad at it yeah just, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah and isn't that sad because I definitely am, was of the camp and maybe still part of me is of the camp of I'm just bad at math right. so I'm never gonna be good at this I've written it off in my life as a, as a skill that I We'll just right. never obtain. Um, and I never had a teacher that just showed me. Here are errors. Let's, you know, yeah. we do it with sentences. We write a sentence on the board yeah. and write, you know, something that's incorrect in this sentence and have them correct it. Why aren't? Why didn't I ever have that in math? It was always very formulaic. Here's some problems. We're going to talk about how you get there real quick. And now here's your 50 math problems at night moving on. And then you turn that in and.
2: Yeah. Let me know if you have questions, but please don't. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And and I was, uh, I am not somebody who has life figured out. And I tried to always be authentic in that. And like, I am going to make mistakes on the board. And please, if you notice that, please point it out because that is a great learning opportunity. Yes. 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 Because if I make that mistake. And I've probably already done this problem multiple times today, <laughs> Yeah, right. you know, like, let's yeah. figure it out. Like, why did I make that mistake? Was I going too fast? Did I, you know, did I reverse, you know, right. a six and a nine, you know, or yeah, yeah. going back to what we had seen before or talked about with B and D, like th- there's really valuable learning there. Um, I, I hope more people well, jump and on.
0: I, and I yeah. hope that people recognize that any skill that you want to learn especially with the growth mindset idea, has to be practiced. If it's an instrument, if it's math, if it's science, if it's English. And so I know there's a lot of camps against homework, right? We hear this all the time where you're against homework. You never assign homework at night. I I can understand that because I definitely understand that my high school students are very busy individuals. They might have jobs, extracurriculars, all those things. But if you're allowing classroom time to do some of those things and they're still not done, because they are on their cell phone or talking to their peers and not actually working, as opposed to struggling through it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, then, yeah, it's homework. It's independent practice that they need to be doing at home. And it matters because at the end of the day, when they come in the next day and they don't know how to do a math problem, you're not ever going to know that unless they have practiced and shown you where their errors are.
2: So there's this concept in special education, and I've been out of that word a little bit, I think it was called Transference, where it's the idea that you can learn a skill in one setting, but an individual may go to a new setting and not be able to do that skill because they learned it in a very specific setting. So to like present a very simple example, it could be, okay. I'm going to learn how to multiply in the classroom. When I get home, I also need to practice that in a different setting to make sure that I'm doing that skill outside of that one environment. And so... In special education, it you know, it's like, okay, we have to allow these students to practice these skills, whether, whether it's a social skill or academic skill, not just in the classroom, but also maybe in another classroom or in the hallway or at home. And I think some of that's important, like with homework, you know, is like, can you practice this outside of the classroom? Because as a teacher, like I want to help students. And sometimes I'm, I was guilty of helping too much, you know, it's like, okay, no, yeah. let, let me, let me do the next step and the next step and the next step. Yeah. And then I, in the yeah. end, I just did the a problem for them right at mm-hmm. some point you have to do this on your home
1: because on the test day i'm not doing the problem for you right, <laughs> right. So, yeah that's as, as a conductor of an ensemble i catch myself doing the same thing like i'll wave my arms harder trying to like <laughs> show <laughs> trying to show them the rhythm yeah. or the entrance or the whatever and it's like that's not that's not how they learn they learn we all learn through prediction error, right? Like we, we make our hypothesis, we project it onto the world. We interact with the world. The world tells us something different. Where's the discrepancy identifying that discrepancy, knowing how to draw our attention to that discrepancy and then what do we do with that information afterwards right yeah learning process right there um yeah the fourth pillar last pillar here is consolidation um we have to be able to consolidate all of that information right after after the the whole prediction error process goes through uh what neuroscientists have discovered obviously we, we know that the brain's not inactive when we go to sleep right like yeah we dream like things happen and and brain scans show that like it's we're basically awake when we're asleep right Um, But what they found is that you will be better at a task after sleeping without any extra rehearsal. Because what happens is, especially if you're doing this task like right before going to bed, uh, he uses the example of like playing video games. What happens is whenever you go to sleep, the activation synthesis in your brain, like those neurons that you were using to play that video game or whatever you were doing, continue to fire, but they actually fire at a much more rapid pace than whenever you are awake because the conscious thought isn't like getting in the way of the processing and everything. And so those neurons are physically like continuing to fire in the pattern you were using before you went to bed which means that whenever you wake up in the morning those neural pathways are that much stronger so like a good night's sleep is essential like biologically essential to effective learning he also goes on to quote the studies we are all very aware of that are decades old at this point where teenager uh teenage sleep cycles are different from child or adult sleep cycles. Like we should not be starting school for high schoolers before 9 a.m. We shouldn't. Like the science says it, like the neuroscience, how the brains work shows that it's it's just a fact of life. It's not because they're lazy. It's not because they're doing anything wrong. Their brains wind down later after the sun goes down, right? Um, and they, they just, they sleep later. They just need that for the activation synthesis. You know, hormones are, are difficult. So <laughs> they, they need a moment to process it Well, at
2: my school, we use research and evidence-based practices unless it's inconvenient.
1: Oh, I mean, oh, oh okay. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Don't do that. Sorry, I forgot how we are a daycare service <laughs> so that the parents can go to work. I'm just not mad about it.
0: I think it's wild that our expectation for kids is to go against their biological nature. Right. And, you know, we start class before 8 a.m. At 7.50. Yeah. And we ask these kids at 7.50 a.m. Who have already been up for a couple hours. We were talking about that as well oh, earlier. Yeah,
1: got to get up for the bus.
0: Yeah. They got to get up for the bus. They might have morning practice First, for yeah. different events, sports, mm-hmm. what have you. And our expectation for them is now you're going to come into my room and you are going to write a critical analysis essay. Why? What? what what's right. wrong? Like, what?
1: It's they're set up for failure at right. that point. And like. I
0: guarantee you, if you were to look at test scores, whatever subject you teach, your morning kids... Depending on what class, say they're identical classes, same amount of students with abilities, your morning classes will score lower than your your than your than whatever, well, that 10 a.m. class, that sweet spot yeah, class that's, that you have.
1: That's, I'm pretty sure literally what the study, I think it was done out, what, in California originally? I don't know. In the like early 2000s, or late 90s, something like that. If this was a real podcast, I'd probably have the actual study <laughs> to cite. We so are I don't, real. I heard this thing on Facebook. I did my own taught, research. I, did, I Googled it. I swear.
0: The, uh, hey, how sad is that? That we are already disservicing those kids from learning. Like, if mm-hmm. we're going to deem that this is important simply because they have not slept.
2: Right. Well, here, here's another crazy thing. Hmm. So, local school district that we are currently, like, in. <laughs> I get it. In, yeah. Involved yeah. with, yeah. yeah. So, because of the busing shortage, they had to have a tiered start. So elementary would start at a different time than middle school, which would start at a different time than high school. Okay. So high school, and I, I believe it was like 730-ish start um, <sighs> the previous school year. But here's the crazy thing about that. Like the students wanted it. They wanted to start early and get out later. Like
1: or, uh, You mean
2: get out earlier? Or, yeah, sorry. Sorry. Start early in the morning. Get out early. They wanted
1: that. Like,
0: just the high schooler specifically. Just the high
1: schooler. They've been indoctrinated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you think about it, if you can get out of school early, you can start your job earlier and make more money. Maybe Mm -hmm. that is a priority in your family household is that you are paying part of those bills or what have you. For sure. Right? The other thing is sporting events and sports.
1: So that's why we're here.
0: (laughs) And extracurriculars (laughs) can now have practice start at three o'clock as opposed to four or what have you. um, So you can get those things done. And so really you have more of your nighttime to yourself.
2: Yeah. And I think we've all been there before we recorded this episode, when we discussed it, this is one of the pieces that we talked about the most in that, you know, we're all guilty of that, of like trying to cram as much life into a day as possible. Right. You know, you've got job, you've got social, you've got your, you know, at home obligations and all those things. So as a high schooler, I would have voted for Yeah, let's start early. Let's get Oh yeah, I would have been as early as possible. But I would still stay up late because I'm wired that way, biologically wired that way, but I'm just punishing myself and and maybe punish isn't the right word. Um,
0: You're setting yourself up to not do as well as you potentially could have. In classes that matter, in, you know what I mean? True. in And so instead to compensate for that, my students do it. I'm sure across the nation, they are drinking coffee or they are drinking monsters or bags Poison. or Red Bulls or what have you. And they come in with those big, giant, I don't know, 32 ounces. I don't drink whatever right. those, what are they called? Smart drinks. What are they called?
1: Smart drinks. What drinks. Energy drinks.
0: I don't <laughs> See, look, that's how bad it is. <laughs> I don't. There's
1: microchips. Oh, it, it is it called Smart Water.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't drink those, right, right. and yeah. so I have no clue. And then you have these kids that are super emotional, yeah, jacked up on caffeine My mom and sugar, up and on Mountain Dew, B12 <laughs> and what have you. Yeah. And now they're going to come and draw their attention. To one thing in your room?
1: I'm also, I'm always bothered. I know I mentioned this before, so you guys have already heard it, but like, I I just need to say it for the listener as well, right? I'm always bothered by the students who come in and like, I can't tell if they're joking or if they're bragging or if they're just exaggerating. They're like, I only got three hours of sleep last night. I'm like, you should like do something to take care of yourself. Like, you know that you need sleep. You know that you need sleep and like... Yeah, we're talking about how they go to bed, like their brain shut down later and they need to sleep later and everything like that. But like three hours, three hours. You couldn't have turned your phone off before midnight, maybe, in order to. And I know some of them like have jobs where they don't get out until 11, but they're like, well, we don't have time to talk about labor laws here. I, and it just bothers me whenever they like, again, it almost feels like they're bragging. And it's not just one student I have in mind. Like there's a good handful of students over my teaching career that, that, just like all of the time, they're like habitually up super late, or they just refuse to right. sleep, or they ha- maybe you know, you know what? Maybe they have some sort of medical like narcolepsy going on or something.
2: I don't know, but so it leads to the question: What do you do with the student first period who's who's asleep? What do you do?
0: I give them one mercy. I will say, Jimmy, good morning, wake up. And then I move on with my day because it is not worth the battle. I'm not going to go touch that student. I'm not going to go try to startle them awake. I am just going to leave them alone because they're tired and they're not causing a problem. Now, maybe if they were like snoring or being (laughs) obnoxious, yeah, you know, (laughs) Timmy's drooling on my shoulder. I don't know what to do. Um, but otherwise, I am going to leave them alone. And whatever it is that we're doing in class, come see me during study hall if if you care that much. Or you or know, at all. or at all. Because typically, the kids that are sleeping, it's not a it's not a one off. Usually, it's right. It's it's every yeah, every morning that sure. they are sleeping. I
1: will say, like in my first couple of years, I did relish in the opportunity to slam a textbook on the floor like as hard as possible in order to get that real, yeah. real crisp smack, you know, Oh yeah, to try to wake them up. And like, I, I think it's just because I was, you know, mid twenties and yeah, just yeah. like, <laughs> here we go, right. you know, but then I, I sort of started to realize, you know, it is, it's always the same kids, you know, and it ultimately is not worth the battle because then they're all like hacked off that. I just woke them up by slamming a textbook onto yeah. the floor. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, yeah, at this point I'm also in the position of like, I won't lie. I don't, I don't even try to wake them up. Because I assume that if they're asleep, if they are actively sleeping, it's a band room. Like, I don't even have, like, the luxury of, like, desks. Could you, know <gasps> Can you I mean? imagine <laughs> sleeping yeah. so and you hear, like, sitting,
0: French horns and clarinets and no, flutes going No, this
1: would be, like, a music glass. appreciation or something oh, okay. like that.
0: Oh, okay. I just couldn't imagine. No, no,
1: no. Band <laughs> class got, itself.
0: <laughs> you, got your, you got your flute and you're just... Yeah. <laughs> no. I was like, man, that'd be wild.
1: But, like, I assume, like, if they are, if they're falling asleep in class, it's because they need to sleep. Right. You know, and, like biologically human side, like forget society because it's all man-made construct. Like you need sleep. Okay. Sleep. <laughs> like fine. Right. This information isn't going to change your life. Probably anyways, like it at least is a, not in this moment, you know, yeah, right.
2: it's a biological need. If it, when a student is like, Hey, I haven't eaten in this week, what do we do? We give them food. Right. Yeah. And a student who needs to sleep and abolish man, lunch debt. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why kids could be tired, and not all of them are valid, mm-hmm. but the kids still need sleep. Right. right. You know, like it's worth reaching out to parents and saying, hey, I need you to be aware that this is a continuous problem for this child. Mm-hmm. And and parents need to parent. They need to be mm-hmm. the bad guy at times. Right, set and, the boundaries
0: for but your But sometimes
2: students. kids still you know, unfortunately they're in a situation where they have to work later or, or right. maybe they're being a parent themselves to siblings or their right. own kids. Yeah.
1: But the parents aren't there to be a parent. Right. right.
2: Um, and that's tough. Like, cause they're still just kids right? and yeah. they're, they're just kids. And I know I was the same way, like the first couple of years, like oh, I'm not, no kids going to sleep in my room. And then it's like, yeah, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight this battle cause they're going to wake up mad right? and no learning's going to happen. And it's right. like, yeah. And it's different than like, if the whole class were sleeping <laughs> and i'm not an effective teacher that's that a different, different story Just that, put is on a, Austin Powers.
0: <laughs> that is a very different situation if your entire class is catching some z's you yeah. better you know right. turn on some lights yeah. and get some the self, party going some
1: self-reflection is necessary in right. that moment
0: uh, or if you're the student teacher sleeping in the back of my room that maybe is a, also yeah. Ooh, I not was great the co teacher
1: <laughs> i was sleeping in the back almost of almost guilty of that in my student teaching It was like in the first couple of weeks and I was like, I was it was still the introductory phase where I was like watching my cooperating oh, teacher yeah, teach, yeah, but now it's like the hour after lunch, and I'm just watching her teach like sixth grade band or something like that, and I'm just whoo, like dozing, but like I recognize like I like caught the head nod, yeah. you know what I mean, where it feels like you're falling and you just like jolt yourself and I was like, I gotta stand up, and I stood up and just started walking around the room, just
2: basically yeah. student teaching, right? Yeah, I was student teaching, yeah, and you were probably still working a job by student teaching, right. Ooh. Which is a whole nother oh, yeah. issue, right? So you were in the yeah. same position as some of those kids of like, yeah. I'm going to do school all day for Literally. free. I'm not getting paid. Yeah, right. full time job. Yeah, Wait. plus I got to work this other job. It just to afford life. Yeah, yeah. And, or, mm, mm, nice little ha, parallel. Right. There. So. so we're fifty. F- Four minutes. Oh,
1: jeez! I thought this oh, was wow. gonna be a quick one, man. Yeah, yeah.
0: We had a lot to say. Well, I still have a lot to say on this. I still, thing, have a lot I to feel say. like too.
1: I really, honestly believe that listening to that episode of Inquiring Minds, like it, they they speak about it much more eloquently than me. Or you just go like straight to the source instead of this third-hand information situation, uh, and just check out uh, Doctor Stennis. <laughs> Stanislas Dehan, I, I'm so sorry. Like, I will reach out to this person and apologize personally. Uh, check out their book, uh, his book, uh, How We Learn Why Brains Learn Better Than Any Machine. Um, it's, it's really cool information. Uh, again, it, some of it seemed obvious, but it felt fresh because it was from that neuroscientific perspective. Um, highly recommended to other educators. Um, it is available as an audiobook. So uh, check it out, and uh, we will talk to you next time.
2: Thanks for listening to Where the Whiteboards Are.
1: If you have any comments, questions, uh, topic suggestions, anything like that, please feel free to reach out to us. We have an email address. It is WTWA at 277media.com, Where the Whiteboards Are, WTWA at 277media.com. The opinions expressed in our podcast are that of the individuals and do not represent the opinions of their employers, school districts, or communities in which they work.